Welcome to the All Things Protest podcast. I'm Rob Sneckenberg, and with me today is my co-host Christian Curran and a special guest, Julia Alvarez of the Kenridge Group. Julia, Christian, thanks for joining us. Today we're going to talk about common bid protest issues in the cost and price areas. We see these arguments all the time, we make many of them ourselves, and we figured it'd be a great idea to have Julia come in and to help us understand what a cost expert looks for when dealing with cost and price issues. So first, we're going to run through some of the legal framework for cost and price issues, typically cost or price reasonableness, followed by realism, as well as maybe even unbalanced pricing. For each of those, we'll have Julia explain what she looks for when addressing such issues. So Christian, why don't you kick us off on price reasonableness? Sure. So reasonableness goes to whether the cost is too high. And so it's important to realize that if the solicitation only has a provision dealing with whether costs are reasonable and it doesn't specify realism, that that is what's going to be evaluated, whether the cost was too high. And generally, the techniques used for evaluating realism are set forth in FAR 15404-1. They include adequate price competition, analysis of individual cost elements, and things of that nature. And so, Julia, what do you tend to look for when you're dealing with a proposal that's just dealing with a reasonableness determination? What are you looking for to see whether the evaluation did properly analyze reasonableness? Sure. So the government has quite a bit of latitude, particularly in a best value procurement, of deciding whether they're going to pay a little bit more in order to get a little bit more from an offeror. So when we're looking at reasonableness, we like to see, you know, is the government paying a price that seems ultimately reasonable, that seems like it's appropriate for the services that they're receiving? We would look at the other offerers to see if they were proposing goods and services that were similar to the awardee. We would look to see how different those prices are, and we drill down to see what determines the price differential. Julia, do you ever conduct any kind of market research or outside surveys of prices? You know, you know what, what's the market rate for a given, uh, a given product or service? Is that something you'd consider in determining whether a price is reasonable? Absolutely. Yeah, cost experts do that quite a bit. So sometimes a cost expert might conduct their own surveys or their own analyses. But typically in a bid protest, because the window is so short, they'll usually rely on existing market analyses. A lot of times, even in the record, the government might have put forward specific sources that they were going to use for their data. And of course, with reasonableness, it can be a highly discretionary determination by the contracting officer. So maybe a little less fertile ground for protest, but still something to consider. One of the most frequent bid protest sustains, and maybe even the easiest to spot right off the bat, though, deals with price realism and whether or not a solicitation provided for a price realism analysis. Christian, can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So basically, Rob, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if the government doesn't put in the solicitation that it's going to conduct a realism analysis, then they can't do that. They have to put offerors on notice that they're going to be evaluated for realism. And realism is essentially the opposite of reasonableness. When you're evaluating realism, you're looking at whether the price was too low. In other words, whether it's unrealistic to perform the contract and the technical requirements of the contract. So offerors need to be put on notice of that because otherwise, you know, you could end up with a low price shootout. You could end up with offerors that are just throwing numbers out there to try to buy the work that aren't able to do it because they bid the job too low. So if it's not in the solicitation, can't do it. And then when it is in the solicitation, 
the agency really has a lot of discretion on how to do it, but there are still constraints. We've seen a lot of protests lately where there's been a lot of scrutiny on realism valuations and, and whether the methodologies set forth by the agency are appropriate, whether they're too mechanical. Those are the types of things that GAO is going to zero in on when they're looking at whether the realism evaluation was conducted appropriately. Another big one is whether the solicitation did an adequate job of, of actually putting forward how the offers were going to be evaluated. If you've got a vague area of the solicitation talking about realism, the agencies may do that to try to get to a point where they can kind of do whatever they want. But you've got to be careful there because you could face some unstated evaluation criteria challenges when you get to a protest on realism. Wait, if, if there are vague criteria in the solicitation, wouldn't you have to challenge that pre-award? Certainly there are instances where that could be a valid post-award challenge where the solicitation just does not provide for things that the agency then went ahead and did, right? So I think it goes to whether, there are two separate issues there, whether the solicitation provides offerors with enough information that they understand how the evaluation is going to be conducted and whether it goes as far as the agency eventually goes in the evaluation, whether what the agency does is rationally encompassed by those solicitation criteria. I guess that's a good point. And what the agency does may differ from the solicitation, but you know, I suppose at a minimum, if you want a particular evaluation process to be followed, or conversely, if you don't want it to be followed and the solicitation isn't clear on that point, that's certainly something you may want to consult with counsel on or consider a pre-award protest. I think you're absolutely right, Rob. If you have a concern that the realism criteria or what the solicitation provides for in terms of the instructions as to how the realism evaluation is going to be conducted, if you have a concern with that, then you should absolutely protest a pre-award because you run the risk then if you don't, you're untimely post-award and you're going to be stuck with that unless you convince GAO otherwise. All right, enough of the legal focus. Julia, tell us from a cost expert's perspective, what do you look for when you dive into a realism analysis? Sure. So realism is so important because offerors generally have incentive to compete on cost in their proposals. If you have a lowest price, technically acceptable procurement, that's pretty obvious. But even in best value, you know, if the offerors have similar ratings for technical ability or past performance, having lower price is often really attractive. And if in a cost plus scenario, if an offeror proposes a price that's unrealistically low, the obvious result is that the offeror is going to end up charging more than it proposed. And so then the government is going to pay more than it thought it would. But even in a fixed price environment, a price that's too low is going to cost the offeror money. So they're going to have to absorb some money that they weren't expecting. And then the question is, how much of a loss can they absorb? And we do see offerors particularly really big ones who are willing to operate at a loss for a little bit because they think it's good for their portfolio to have that contract. But with smaller offerors or even big ones where the loss is more than you thought, they're not going to be able to sustain such a huge loss. And then they might not be able to perform. So that, that's a big concern for the government. Is this more of a concern in the price or cost context? In a price situation, if you're unrealistically low, then you're just out right? Or you're, you're getting a huge amount of risk assessed to your proposal from the evaluation side. But in a cost situation, the government can make adjustments to fix what it views as an unrealistically low price. So from a competition perspective, you're better off in the cost situation because you're still more likely to stay in the competition than if your price is so low that it's so unrealistic on a fixed price job, then you know, you're going to have a hard time getting these awards. But that's assuming that the government you know, adequately does its realism evaluation. Right. Well, the government should be doing an adequate cost realism evaluation. I mean, in a cost-based contract, 
the government has to pay the contractor its costs. So the contractor can put whatever it wants down on paper, but the government's going to pay those actual costs. What do you assess when you're looking at a proposal to assess whether an offer's cost is realistic? Sure. So we look at basically all the assumptions that are embedded in the proposal, and in the cost proposal specifically. So we'll look at how many hours are being proposed, how many labor hours. Does that match to what the solicitation required? How is the offerer treating overtime? What is the balance of direct labor to subcontract labor? We'll take a look at the labor rates and say, you know, how high are they? What are they based on? Is the offer an incumbent? Does the offeror anticipate using incumbent labor? And if so, you know, how do the labor rates compare to the incumbent's labor rates? We'll also take a look at indirect rates, see if they're using approved indirect rates, look at their cost structure, try to figure out how those indirect rates are applied. And sometimes we even work with technical experts and we determine the cost impacts of technical decisions. So if you were to add another jet to your fleet, how would that impact your proposed cost? That's a lot of numbers, a lot of costs to look at. I know that I personally, I'm sure Christian and, and every other uh, bid protest lawyer who has worked with a cost expert such as yourself has appreciated your help digging through voluminous spreadsheets. We know it can be a task. With the time we're remaining, why don't we talk a little bit about unbalanced pricing? Christian, do you want to talk us through the legal framework there? Sure. So unbalanced pricing is exactly what it sounds like. Basically, you can end up in a situation where although the overall price might be reasonable and realistic, the individual elements of that price might be hugely out of whack. So where you see this pop up is, especially in cost-type contracts with lots of different CLINs that span a number of different work areas, you could see contractors maybe front-loading costs in a certain area that throws things off in the later CLIN-out years or messing with their indirects to offset things in a way that just doesn't add up. And so what the agency is looking for there is just to make sure that there's not any gaming of the system, so to speak, depending on how the contract is set up, so that, again, all the costs that are expected to be there are there, even though it may look, if you're just focusing on the total, like it works out. If things are, are really out of whack, that can be problematic, and that's what an agency's going to look for. So, Julia, what do you tend to look for? I know these are, this is kind of the more rare of the three issues. And there's not a whole lot of protest that gets to stand on this basis. But what do you look for in a proposal to try to figure out whether it's balanced? So we would perform something that's often referred to as a common size analysis, where we will lay out the costs over the different option years. Um, and we'll look at all the CLINs and compare them on a percentage basis. So if we're looking at maybe we've got one base year and four option years, if we see that the base year and option year one are they're each maybe 5% of the total cost, and then option years two through five are a lot more, we would say, hey, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like it's balanced. It seems like you are, you know, you're assuming that you have to get at least through option year two before you start making any money at all on this contract. Or we'll look at all the different CLINs and say, hey, they seem to be loading a lot of their costs into CLIN one, and they're ignoring CLINs two through 10. That might be okay, but we would try to identify outliers. Right, right. Because it's going to be a very, this more than anything else is a very, very RFP kind of specific analysis because like you pointed out, you could have what appears to be an unbalanced price based on the CLINs, but if 
that's what the CLINs in the RFP actually call for, then it could be kind of a red herring, right? Yeah. And if you have uh, maybe an independent government cost estimate, the IGCE, that's usually a really good comparison. So you right. can say, okay, what did the IGCE think? They've already laid it out for us. You know, here's how they figured that it would all compare. And if you have multiple offers, typically you can say, hey, we've got five offers here. Let's look at all of them and let's see how everybody else did it. And if you, if you see that maybe four of the offers are doing it in one way and the fifth is doing something very different, that might be an outlier, that they might have different assumptions, um, it might be totally fine. But it's usually something to take a look at. That's a very good point in terms of the IGC and, and something that really covers all of these as well. Do you find, just curious as to your experience, do you think the government agencies are getting away from doing more detailed IGCs and trying to rely more on price competition or, or other factors? I know I've seen a lot recently where the IGCs just aren't really an issue, whereas they used to be really the kind of the primary thing. I think that you know, the government relies on. I'm curious as to your experience with that. So what I've been seeing recently is that the IGCEs are still being done. They're still being considered, but they're almost being disregarded. And so even if you have an IGCE, if that is really different from what one of the offers, really any of the offers put forth, the agency will just sort of consider an outlier and dismiss it. And where we have seen that come up in a bid protest is if one offeror is really close to the IGCE, that offeror is going to say, hey, this supports us. Right. This You should have considered this. And then another offeror might have been very different. And if that offeror won, who is very different, they might say the IGCE was bad and, and so is your proposal. So I think what we have seen recently is that the IGCs are being relied less on mm-hmm. by the agency. Right. But when they're closer to the offerors, the offerors are usually going to reach to those. Right. And I guess in certain instances, it can also provide the government with cover for kind of canceling and and redoing things, right? If they expect to get bids at a certain level, but everybody's bidding way above the IGCE, I mean, that seems to be a pretty clear indicator that something's wrong, right? Yeah. Either the IGCE missed something or everybody else missed something. Right. Well, Julia, thanks very much for the interesting perspective and discussion on these different cost and price topics. I know that these issues come up a lot, so hopefully this has been helpful for our listeners in issue spotting those in the future and, you know, learning how to deal with them uh, when they do arise. But we hope to have you back in the near future. And for all of our listeners, once again, thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest. Thank you.